Hello and welcome to another episode of the Rippling Pages podcast with me, Liam Bishop, a writer from Leeds, who are far away from the grey skies of the north of England this week. This week we're in San Andreas, a beautiful island in the Caribbean Sea, blue skies and seas with sandy beaches and palm trees. Yet for Victoria, the protagonist of Christina Bendex's Salt Crystals, she's returning to the island where her family have lived for generations. And beneath the surface, there's more than meets the eye as Victoria explores her personal history and her family trauma and the island's complicated legacy too. Originally written in 2018, Salt Crystals has won literary awards in Colombia and since then, it's been translated into Portuguese and has now been translated into English by Robin Myers for Charcoal Press. Having translated writers such as Andres Newman and Isabel Zapata, Robin is a writer too with poems published in Poetry London and the Yale Review, among others. Christina joined me from Berlin and Robin from Mexico City. I want to start by just talking about the very first words of this novel. The first words are, and the first line is, I'm from this island in the Caribbean. Now, this is such a fantastic line because uh, it feeds into the kind of conflicting history of your protagonist, Victoria, and the ideas about the island itself. Can you give us some insight into San Andres and why it's the setting of this novel? I remember very clearly deciding uh, that this would be the first words uh, in the novel, that this would be the starting point because it is a novel about identity. So in a way, uh, starting this way is um, it's a way of locating uh, the reader and of locating the narrator within the, the, the whole island setting right since the beginning and it's it's already a way of letting everyone know that that this is going to be uh, a story uh, in which identity and the place uh, where you were born take special uh, meaning besides there are so many things that get very complicated when you state that you're from uh, this caribbean island san andres and uh, the reason why this was very important for me is because it's always been um, a very powerful source of doubt, basically, uh, being from San Andres. What does this mean? San Andres is a very um, rich, uh, it's a very small, it's a 27 square kilometer island right in the middle uh, of the southwestern Caribbean area between uh, Colombia and but actually closer to the Central American coastline and uh, limiting with many uh, different states, actually six different international borders right there. And it's a place that has inherited many different colonialisms. And when you say you're from San Andres, this is something that's not actually, it, it, it could mean anything. If you don't know what the person looks like, for example, or who, what the uh, origins of the person are, or where this person's family comes from, this could mean anything. This could mean you're from Arabic origins, for example, or it could mean you're from African descent um, heritage, or it could mean that you have Irish or Scottish or English blood running through your veins, or that you come from the continental Colombian mainland. Something that we give in such common parlance every day, we, we identify ourselves by where we're you know, from, in inverted commas. But from there on in, the whole novel feels like an exploration of what this line means or, or doesn't mean. How difficult is it to write about a character reconciling with some of the more darker aspects of the place she was from? And How difficult is it to sort of write about reconciling with these ideas? I would say it's terribly difficult. <laughs> once, you, once you make peace with these 
conflicting aspects of the place, uh, of myself being from this place, and of course this being the reason why I'm so obsessed about it, um, and I will continue to be obsessed about it. The only thing that you can do is enjoy a little bit of this of this momentaneous peace, knowing that it will it will be momentaneous. And actually, everything in this island, I, I it has come to be my impression is momentaneous. Everything seems to come and go and, and you just seem to be at the position to just grab things and just catch things the way that you can and just absorb them, and enjoy them and live through them just as long as they last. Everything seems to be a bit uh, ephemeral, ephemeral. There are so many tensions between what is political, what is cultural and what, what is spiritual about identity within this novel uh, and within myself, of course, and embodied in the, in the character of, of Victoria, that once you play with the, with the title and with this uh, trope that I, that I thought of, uh, the salt crystals, once you start, once you crystallize a certain notion about identity and this condensates finally. It, the only thing that you can do again, just enjoy the moment because it will not last. And this is what happens with this Caribbean identity from San Andres. You cannot uh, really understand, you cannot really detach, for example, the African descent aspect from the continental aspect, from the uh, colonial heritages that we, that we have, from the uh, Arabic uh, influences that we also already own. And these, all of these optics, that are, all of these lenses that we, that we are already using to understand ourselves and the Raisal identities of the indigenous community from the islands. When you condense all of these, the only thing that you can do is just enjoy the, the, the little space of peace in which all of these identities can can coexist i absolutely love that word momentaneous uh, it's such a fantastic word to describe a novel novels we think of these fixed things these physical things that sort of endure history and time but to write something momentaneous that's that you know that is sort of more transient and fluid it's such an interesting idea robin don't know if you've ever visited San Andreas. How, how did, these, did this come alive on the page? Did it come through the translation? You know, how were you approaching it when you sort of first read it in Spanish? There are two things that come to mind most in listening to your question. And one is, I mean, the first part, I have not been to San Andres, um, which is always a disconcerting experience as a translator. Um, I'm, I live in Mexico City. I've translated a lot of Mexican writers, and I would say also just in terms of sheer number of Argentine writers as well, and I have spent some time in Argentina, and I've been to mainland Colombia, to Medellin and Bogota, um, and I have some Colombian friends, and so I, I have, you know, on, on some level a sort of there is there is a, a, some kind of Colombian Spanish in my in my ear, um, but certainly less so than than the kind of Spanish that I have learned most intimately and that I live around most intimately, um, and I have and, and I don't have a visual image of having or a physical experience of being San Andres, and so when that happens, which I think is not an insurmountable obstacle, but it certainly makes for a different point, a different point of entry into a translation, and it makes for a very different kind of homework, I'd say. Um, and so, you know, there's also something really inviting and 
and immersive about Christina's book in that it offers up a lot of a lot of the history, um, both very recent and you know centuries of history of San Andres. But I knew that I both needed and wanted to do a lot of other reading about about the history of San Andres, and so I found um, actually a lot of really excellent academic articles online, mostly in Spanish, um, much less in English, um, about the history of San Andres, about different cultural backgrounds in San Andres, and what was also just the most wonderful part of the process of translating this book was getting to talk with Christina and we had this um, this very funny sort of routine where I would you know I, I made many many questions and, and notes to myself in the margins of my first draft of the translation um, and Christina being the wonderful warm and patient person she is um, received an enormous amount of these questions directly from me and so I would um, whatsapp her a series of I think we sort of would do kind of five or ten a day <laughs> for a while and then Christina Christina would would respond. We would you know trade voice notes also, and so there was you know an, an an enormous amount that I learned directly from from her as the author and her as someone who who has such a rich firsthand knowledge of of San Andres culture. You know I went down various rabbit holes in the way that is inevitable and important. I think in in translating I you know, listen to different kinds of music that come up um, in the translation. It just, to be able to just have more of a sensory range of, of everything that gets referenced and explored in the book felt felt important. And I knew that, that I needed to step it up as the translator. I needed to do, I mean, the kind of research that, you know, I think I often thought of research as strictly sort of historical materials and, and historical dates. But a lot of the research that I think is so important in a translation is sort of the texture of, of a text, you know, of, <laughs> of speech and music and sounds. Um, I also did, you know, some research in sort of Google Earth and looking at the way the buildings are built, roots, um, just to get a sense of the geography, which is so intimately explored. Do you take this approach to every novel? I do some degree of this with every novel. And I think there are some novels that either, I mean, there are some novels that are less enmeshed in place, you know, where there is this, or, and so there's, you know, obviously every novel is set somewhere in some way, but um, I think the, the, the intensity and the detail um, of place, the importance of place, um, and, and also just the, the involvement um, with different kinds of historical moments and processes are, are they are in a way characters too in this book. And so I think it did call for an especially intense kind of research. And I think also just recognizing that it was a place I knew less about firsthand. I, I felt that some of, you know, Christina and talking about, you know, the, the rootedness of identity in this book, the the sense of of being from and part of so many things um, and cultural backgrounds and moments in time. I think there's something really special and expansive about about the structure of this novel and about how there are certain moments which when Christina talks about the momentaneous and um, the ephemeral, there are moments of the book where the narr the, the narrative delves into a, a particular moment. And I think what felt important to me beyond you know what we've just been talking about in terms of research and background and history is to let those moments of total presentness, you know, there are moments when she's swimming in the ocean or when she's dancing or when she's having, Victoria is having these moments of connection to the past and imagining her ancestors. 
where on the level of language, um, there is a kind of vividness and openness and expansiveness. It's like there's sort of this, this stream of consciousness in a way um, that I felt that as a translator on the level of language, my job was to let that moment feel as vivid as possible. Um, and so that's, you know, that's where sort of I come to translation from the translation of poetry and the writing of poetry, where the language takes the, the center stage. And you did it so beautifully. I oh, that the novel has had a few translations to, to Danish and to Portuguese. In English, I had possibility to engage to what I'm reading in a more intimate way than I can in either of those uh, other languages. And it was, for me, it's just such a special experience to, to, re to read your uh, work, actually. It feels as, I, as if I can as if I can take a, a, a very, very um, productive uh, and inspiring and insightful creative perspective on the novel uh, that supposedly I wrote myself, you know, it's, it's, it's as if I was revisiting the whole experience from a completely different tone, from a completely different place. I don't, I don't, I've, I've talked about it, about this sensation before, um, and I will continue to, 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 to explore this myself while, while engaging with, with your translation because it's some, it makes me feel something very, very special. And I'm just really, really happy with, with what happens to me when I, when I read your words and your choices. Robin, you called this book, in a Translator's Notes, uh, an intrinsically multilingual book. Great phrase, I love that phrase. Uh, and you called it a challenge and a thrill to translate. Do you think the linguistic challenge, and I guess for you, Christina, as well, you know, are the linguistic challenges intrinsic to some of the challenges that the narrator endures in exploring the island and her family's history? Absolutely. I mean, I think among all the other threads of identity that are followed and explored and interwoven throughout the book, there is also um, this exciting and complicated entanglement um, of language of a narrator who is a Spanish speaker who is of Raisal ancestry, but who does not speak Creole. And that is part of her own struggle and sense of self sort of revision and returning to San Andres and learning more about her own background and getting to know young people who are intensely involved politically in the daily life and present and future, present and past and future of San Andres, um, who where Creole is, is part is an important part of their own identity that she both shares and is and feels excluded from and feels ashamed of. Languages have different political roles, um, that it's not a question of, okay, here's an English word in the text, I'm going to switch it for Spanish. You know, it's, it's not a one to one correspondence. Um, it calls for a constant evaluation and self interrogation about what different languages are doing politically and socially. Um, and so it felt also important, it felt important to let that happen in Spanish, and sorry, in the translation, in my English translation. It felt important also to not over explain, um, to sort of think very carefully about when it was important to contextualize a little bit more or a little bit differently than what happens in Spanish. And at the same time, to remember that this is a novel that is in the first person that has a kind of diaristic quality in some ways, that there are passages in the book where Victoria is explicitly writing to herself. And then also um, that, you know, it would feel very weird for there to be a sort of parenthetical statement inserted in the novel. So I think, you know, there were lots of considerations that I made, lots of things that Christina and I talked about together, about how to allow the narrative in English to be 
to be fluid, to be as fluid as possible and to incorporate these different languages um, in a way that also reflects moments of, of, of strangeness and of not complete knowing that the narrator herself experiences and the other people in the book experience. And that, you know, the, the linguistic experience of Victoria is not being completely sure of what everything means all the time. And so why, why should an English language reader have that experience too? Just listening to you right now, um, putting it in words, of course, because we did it and I was just thinking, my God, I don't even remember everything that we, that we did and all of the choices that you had to make going through the challenge of, of doing this. Um, and I think that that's just pure art, actually, to, you know, to just um, finding the way to synchronize everything just so that you play with these curiosities. And uh, for me, for example, I just wanted to note I have I had to make certain choices that I wasn't uh, fully sure if I if I if I could make them. Um, not being a Creole native speaker myself, what I did was a bit like in the novel. What I what I decided to do with Creole language was uh, writing it in the way that I listened to it and in the way that I've always uh, heard it around myself uh, growing up and just being in the island, which is uh, I think for islanders from these islands, if we are uh, abroad and far from Creole native speakers for too long, we already start missing the way that this sounds and what it does, uh, what the sound of what, what a certain uh, pronunciation does when it hits you. <laughs> and um, I decided to use this uh, very personal experience just to say that there are also other written forms of Creole. So what I just, what I, what I did since there is still not a clear consensus about the way that it should be written, um, about a grammar in particular for this Creole, I just uh, wrote it in the way that, uh, that, that, it, that it sounds. So it's a phonetic transliteration uh, instead of using even the rules of, uh, of English. And I've heard already um, English uh, native speakers, uh, readers uh, engaging with reading out loud. And this experience of reading out loud also is something that I found very particular, like leading a reader to also uh, pronounce um, a form uh, of language that is not that you don't think you can uh, acknowledge just right away. But then when you use the spoken word, it comes clear and you already acknowledge the words that, that you're reading. And I think it's just very magical because the Caribbean uh, is, of course, a very... Uh, we are used more to oraliture, to our oral literatures, than to the written forms of literature. So then it's a way of, of keeping the language alive also and of, of, of also going... Uh, across borders, which I think is something really magical. And uh, again, that Robin helps us uh, achieve. For me, there's this dynamic between sort of conscientization of Victoria. The more she sort of finds out, the deeper she sort of gets, and the bigger the web gets of interconnected histories and traumatic histories and colonial histories. Which came first, the kind of exploration of the history of, of, of Victoria's family or the kind of more recent tragedy uh, of Victoria? I, I, I wanted her to be a lonely subject because I didn't want her to have access to these uh, filtered family memories. I just wanted her to have a very raw version of her own family and then just coming from that, just getting into the island and trying to find 
um, the truth. I think in my own experience, I, I've, in, in my whole life experience is about going back to San Andres. This is what I will do my whole life. <laughs> yes, um, I will always go back to San Andres and I will always, uh, I will never stop discovering it. It's just such an amazingly complex place. Um, I could really spend the rest of my life trying to understand it. And every time that I come back, my own gaze is affected by this uh, re-encounter. And again, I am seeing things that I couldn't have seen uh, for me. Histories are painful and, and histories do things to families. And sometimes uh, families are not really aware of how much, and, and we as subjects are not really aware of how much, how affected we are by our contexts in the way that we make choices. So sometimes some of these choices we conceal from the next generation or we kind of um, rephrase or reframe for the next generation in order to um, hide certain pain, to avoid certain pain, but we don't actually, we can't actually change our attitudes or our personalities or our persona. We cannot really change the way that we relate uh, to the next generations overall. We can choose silence but the pain is still going to be there and our mechanisms of defense are always going to be there. So this is also the reason why I chose that this character would be alone uh, because she wouldn't have to fight uh, her family's own, own lies. Also, I wanted her to discover something about her own symptoms and her own embodiment of pain and of historical trauma which is her diabetes. This is a way, for me, it was a way of thinking, okay, this is a, a character who has a disease and this is an island who is also a character who also has a, a disease. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something with these two bodies and I'm gonna, do, I'm gonna set certain correspondences between these two bodies and see what uh, historical trauma has done to the, whole, to, to the whole community and to the island and to, you know, because, it creates relationships in the way that we relate to the environment. It's the way that we relate to history in itself and what we've learned from history affects the way that we relate to the environment and to the collectivity. I wanted to see what family trauma did to her own personal body and see if there was a way that she could shed light in these correspondences. So this was a choice that she would be alone and that she would have the disease of the Caribbean, which is diabetes, which is so entangled with, um, of course, the sugar uh, plantation, the sugarcane plantation. So you chose then diabetes as a kind of psychosomatic, physical embodiment of this relationship with history? Yes, because I wanted us to reflect upon the fact that these are not uh, metaphors, these things about um, our colonial past, we live them, we, we, we are affected by them on our in our bodies. Um, racism is a way of doing that, of course, of being affected um, from this colonial past and from these colonial devices and from these colonial oppressions. But there are other ways, of course, and uh, this pain and disease is another way of being affected. And I think Again, the less we come to realize 
about this problematic past and the less that we can put it out in words and the less narratives that we can actually thread about it and you know just bring it out and do this kind of exorcism and actually name things by the way that they were yes we had slaves we were these people or yes we don't know our past because our people came here abducted you know or we have uh, inherited certain privileges or we have inherited certain painful conditions. And uh, if we don't have these conversations in such a small island, we are going to forever bear the costs of these without being able to solve the real uh, root of this. And it gets even more complicated because, because this is an island with very, very recent mass immigration. And these uh, recent immigrants from the continental mainland don't really have a way to sail through these complexities. Uh, in, in many ways, they are just not aware, especially if they are the kind of, of immigrant who looks for a way to profit from mass tourism and has the means to do so. So just establishes uh, in a certain layer of society. It's just completely ignorant of the underlying conditions of the society that he's coming in to settle. And this just complicates things even more. And uh, it complicates uh, competition over the land even more and resources. And, and then again, all the environmental aspects of, of the novel then come, come to place. Now, we know the Ripton Pages is all about supporting writers from presses, big, small, all different kinds of presses. I just love great fiction. One way to help support that process is by leaving a small review on your favorite podcast provider. Because what this does is boost the visibility of the episode, like this one with Christina and Robin, and all the other episodes with the great writers we've had on the Ripley pages. So if you do have time to leave a review, I'd obviously be massively, massively grateful. Otherwise, no problem at all. It's just great to have you here. And please do enjoy the rest of the episode. Obviously, we can't change history. And you spoke a lot about the kind of discovery of history for Victoria and what she goes through to discover the history. Can this understanding change? Can this perception change? Or does the knowledge of it changed the person. It was really fascinating for me to translate this book, thinking about my own background and my own location. Um, you know, I grew I'm from the United States. I grew up there. Um, I live in Mexico City, which, you know, so I come from a country that has colonized and economically exploited Mexico, you know, for centuries and does so to this day. Um, and I'm also someone who, you know, was born into a system of white privilege in the UN United States that has certainly benefited me um, and that I have, like many people, reckoned, have been reckoning with and asking myself hard questions about. But a branch of my family is Mexican. Um, so I'm, you know, a white American living in Mexico with Mexican background and my Mexican family can trace itself back um, to a conquistador of the city of Monterrey. Um, and so I know the name, you know, of that man who contributed to the massacre of, of indigenous populations um, and contributed to the, the, you know, Mexico is a country that most, most present day Mexicans descend both from, um, to put, use the language of the conqueror, the conquerors and the conquered, um, the oppressors and the oppressed. And so I have a name that I can place um, to a particular person. And yet my family history is also shared by millions of contemporary Mexicans in one way or, or another, whether they know the names of their of those oppressive ancestors or do not um, and so thinking about you know 
contemporary and past colonization, thinking about translating this book into English, which is an imperial language, undeniably, you know, into as is Spanish, you know, we could say. Um, I, I don't know if, you know, I mean, I think it would, it feels to me, speaking for myself, illusory to say that simply by becoming aware of these dynamics, can they change? Can they change things on a systemic level? I, I think that there's um, a sort of, this is sounds like a tangent, but I read something recently, which I thought was a beautiful description of what the value of poetry is, which I think can be applied to many other forms of art, which is the, I think it was Jeffrey Hill who said that poetry is a sad and angry consolation, um, which I've been thinking about. And I think that there is a sad and angry consolation at work in Salt Crystals and that it is a place that Victoria comes to on a level and that taking stock of all of these systems of power in which she is both a colonial subject and so she is she is caught in it and tamped down by it and she's also descends from people who have profited off of that and is now tapped into a network of young people um, who are deeply committed to and invested in um, doing that sort of stock taking among themselves in in trying to address these historical grievances and injustices and are committed to thinking together about how to resist and how to to work towards a future that is more just for the land for the planet for each other and yet that that you know that, that doesn't just happen you know and, and these forces are so powerful both historical forces and contemporary economic forces um, and there is a sense of of powerlessness of of frustration, of anger, um, and that that doesn't, and also of, of self-criticism too, as, as Christina has alluded to, sort of seeing where movements of resistance can betray themselves or can dilute themselves. Um, all of that is part of this. Um, and so I think, you know, for me thinking about this novel and thinking about the ways that it's also helped me um, think about some of these dynamics in my own multiple sort of concentric environments. I think that sort of awareness is profoundly important because it does change an individual, it does change, um, it keeps you uncomfortable, which I think is essential. I mean, any time in thinking about these you get super comfortable, just, oh, great, figured that out. Now I'm off the hook forever. You know, that's not the goal here. You know, the goal is to keep asking these questions and to keep asking them with other people, because I think that there's something about the solitary exercise, um, which is important, um, but then it stays within you. And I think any, you know, the, the sense of community is something that can be very small and that is involved in, you know, in reckonings that can happen in groups of people, in friends, in families, in small organizations. Um, that feels essential. And that is, you know, that that the sort of change that can happen there is nothing to sneeze at. And yet, you know, the, the sort of the landscape beyond that is, you know, the sad and angry consolation is sometimes I think, all that feels accessible, um, which is a hard which is a hard note to end on. Um, and it's also true, I think. It's not enough to be aware that actually in the way that you are living in this oceanic island, uh, this, this way in itself of reproducing modernity is the way of reproducing colonialism, of course. Um, but I think at the moment that you become aware and, and, and are disturbed by this idea and start actually what Robin just said, 
taking it into collective spaces, then you create um, not even these uh, massive movements or these um, big political endeavors or, but you create certain less pretentious um, and, and you, you, you get involved in, into less uh, pretentious actions that in the end mean a lot more because they just go on transforming the way that we perform ourselves every day. For example, if we in an island like this, I, I, I located from there because it's just easier to think that you can change something in such a small place. It's easier to think that we can change something in, for example, larger cities or larger communities. If we think where our food comes from, for example, and we start realizing that we need to take back uh, on our uh, own food and we start growing the land and we, we start uh, giving the land um, back its, its, its central role and it's, it, that it used to have and that it has actually in our Raisal culture in the islands, then, uh, then we're doing something, right? So if we first become aware of what these colonial um, systems ha have done to us and actually uh, bringing us up under the illusion that we can continue to live under certain conditions and within certain circumstances and that this could go on forever. And if we wake up from these and if we uh, create communities that feel the same way, then we can, and it's not even something that you can ask for uh, permission that, or that you need to ask permission um, about. It's not something that you have to negotiate with the state. It's not something because sometimes we think that there needs to be a, a bigger, a larger pact for us to start doing these things, I guess. And it's just, this is something very, very hard to do, but it sounds really simple, but it's very hard to execute and to live accordingly. Um, these small changes uh, can, can really mean a lot, a lot, a lot more uh, when they are shared within a community. So I, I think people in San Andres are starting already to do this and, and in all Providence, but uh, yet again, I think the awareness of, of how um, affected we've all been by this homogenized idea of how existence needs to be and how we need to, uh, what we need to achieve and how we need to project ourselves if this thing, you know, projects yourself or whatever, leave the island. Actually, this was, a, this was a, the, the way that most of us were raised. This is a place where you need to, that you need to escape uh, from. And actually, Many of us have been raised in this way. Sometimes it felt like resistance was a good word in a positive word. It was a tool that she needed. But sometimes we talk about personal resistances to acknowledging our parts in histories. Um, and that's why I found resistance such an interesting word. And the whole, and she's checking in her blood sugar levels all the time. She's, and she has to make sure her diet is regulated. And it was a kind of only instance really in this book of an, equilib an equilibrium, a regulation, something that kind of brought us back to a kind of stasis and stability by her checking, by Victoria checking into her blood sugars and her diet and making sure that this is, a, it comes a refrain really. And it's the kind of moment where we sort of get brought back to Victoria and her experience and her. It's just too hard sometimes to bear into account all the, all the possibilities um, around a certain problem that we may be facing, but uh, disease is a very emotional thing. In the book, 
it is diabetes that leads her to Ma Josephine, which is this, this character that embodies memory and this, this sort of um, a motherly figure for her, a grandmother, the, the grandma that she didn't have, that is this woman that, ha that has this sort of bank of memory for, for the island. And that also gives her a sort of psychedelic device for her to explore on her own and to, to encounter paths of, of, of towards her own histories. And, and, and not just, of course, her own history or mine, which is the, which, which is the one that I was trying to explore, um, but the history of, but the histories uh, of the island, this is something, uh, this is something I guess it's very, it's important. This is my great, great grandparents uh, in the picture that Victoria finds. I found this picture and I wanted to know um, who they were, where they came from, how they made it into this island. One was of Scottish de the, um, uh, descent, the other was of Irish descent. And I wanted to know, um, it's just, it was just such a particular image when I found it that I wanted to know, I, I thought it was just full of secrets and no one in my family really knew uh, much about their parents or uh, where they came from or what they did and so on. And then it was actually the island uh, herself that started giving me hints on, on, on all of these. And it's not, again, just my... Um, particular personal story, but it's also a way, and I, and I would want people to also take this, uh, readers, if, 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 if anything, it's just the fact that no history, no personal history is really personal at all. It is just traversed and just, just, just pierced by so many histories. And so not, not just um, from people around you, but we are such a collective product. We are not, we're not alone. What was the quote, Robin, from Jeffrey Hill? Sad and angry. A sad and angry consolation. Well, I was going to say, this novel for me reminds me of a constellation. Um, and, and, you know, and like a consolation for, for so I'm sure. But, and he joins that, that, well, I'm not going to use the word tradition, but joins this, this relatively modern form of the novel that I think that Olga Tokarczuk has spoken a bit about when she won the Nobel Prizes. She called it a constellation novel, and it's about all these different interconnecting influences that aren't always apparent that aren't always clear and that for me was what the novel became it was this if you want to call it a hybrid between sort of fiction and non-fiction the kind of delivery of its tone and some of the facts but obviously a, a fictional protagonist but all these kind of different forms and bodies that were interacting when we weren't always clear what the interaction of those were all the time or some people were clear what the interaction were, but then, you know, anyway. But for me, that's what this reminded me of, a constellation and a constellation. <laughs> and and, and, and sad, a sad and angry one sounds actually, yeah. <laughs> actually really nice. I think one thing I really love about the novel too is how much how much of it involves people talking to each other. You know, I think so much of of the resistances that we've been talking about, you know, and there's this this phenomenon that we experience several times in the novel, which I think is so beautiful. It's the idea of the phrases a thinking rundown um, and a group of people getting together to sort of huddle and talk really, really hard together, to think out loud together about history and about the present and about happened historically that could have been otherwise, what is happening now that could be otherwise, and then eating dinner and drinking beer and 
enjoy and having a party, you know, and I think the idea also that there is something really joyful and alive and and enlivening about about this sort of conversation that can be hard and painful and 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 exposing to the people who are part of it and yet is also part of this sort of celebratory act um, which i think is something that you know we can see in in protests all over the world i'm thinking about you know the women's marches in mexico city um about you know i don't know protests everywhere you know i think there are these often these moments of explosive sort of riotous love um and and wonder um and so i think you know, something I would love readers to take away from this book is also just this sense of marveling at what can happen when, when people get together to talk to each other in a really honest way and how they can accompany each other doing that. That is so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, such a, a oral novel in the sense, you know, it's called Salt Creek and it immediately evokes the idea of sort of taste and, and salt, but then there's obviously the diet of the diabetes and the, loads of dialects and the, loads of just characters discussing ideas um such a modern innovative novel in a way i thought but also kind of rooted in a just about characters interacting thank you guys for joining me from from different parts of the globe um it's uh it is one of the pleasures of i think one of the you know unexpected pleasures of being able to sort of do a podcast like this and we can sort of reach across um different countries and different time zones i just want to say thank you so much for for having me for having us it's i've enjoyed this conversation a lot and um i enjoyed it just too much and thank you thank you liam for for such generous words and for such um you know for receiving the novel in such a such a broad way in having it yes thank you very much and thank you robin it was it's been a pleasure to to, to hear your insights and your your ideas I would like to say the same. Thank you so much, Liam, for for you, such a committed and thorough and curious reading of of this work. And thank you, Christina, always for your generosity and brilliance. And it's just such a pleasure to speak to both of you and such a joy to have gotten to work with you on this amazing book. Thanks very much to Christina and Robin for joining me for today's episode. And of course, my biggest thanks is reserved to you. Listeners are what makes the podcast and keeps the podcast going. Now, that does bring us to the end of Series 3 Beneath the Surface. But there is going to be one more episode before the end of the year, and that's a special bonus episode. Now, if you'd like to find out what that is, you're going to have to follow the Rippling pages on social media. That's Rippling underscore pages. That's at Rippling underscore pages. And that's for both Twitter and Instagram. Indeed, get in touch. Tell me what you enjoy. Tell me what you might like to see on the Rippling pages. I do enjoy hearing Otherwise, it's until next time. Thanks very much. <laughs>